1: When Flora Thompson DeVoe showed up as a freshman at Princeton University, she wasn't exactly sure what she wanted to study. She randomly got invited to a department open house where she was talked into taking a class on Portuguese literature. Sure, she said, why not? One of her early assignments was to translate a biography of Brazilian dancer, singer, and actress Carmen Miranda, who famously wore elaborate hats made out of fruit in her performances. The Carmen Miranda assignment sparked something in Flora. She became more and more interested in Brazil and decided to dive deep into Brazilian literature. She decided to start with a 19th century novel she'd kept hearing about, called The Posthumous Memoirs of Bras Cubas, by Joaquim Maria Machado de Assis.
2: There are certain encounters with books where you just feel like you've made a friend. Um, And I actually still have the the copy and it's still got all of my post-its in it from when I read it at age 19. And I didn't know much more about it than that it was just, it was a very important novel. And I think I was not expecting to really enjoy myself. This was sort of like, I'm going to take my medicine, I'm going to read this 19th century novel. And very quickly, you know, a couple pages in, I was just shocked by how irreverent, how light, how unexpected, how sort of nasty... (laughs) <laughs> this this 19th century novel was. You know, I just I, for a week I must have just been unsufferable. Like, have you have you heard of this book? You know, I would, I would just carry it around with me. And it's like, this book is amazing. And what everything I would always say to people, it it's uh I can't you know, you can't believe that it was written in, in 1880. Um and now after trap after having translated it and, and and worked with it, I can absolutely believe that it was written in 1880 and I would submit that you can only understand how brilliant it is if you understand everything that was happening in 1880 around the time that it was written
1: thompson Devoe got to know the book even more intimately when she translated it from Portuguese to English as part of her Ph.D. dissertation. The first English translation was published in the early 1950s. thompson Devoe wanted her translation to capture the nuance Machado had so carefully crafted in the original Portuguese version.
2: So many authors, you read this and you're like, God, this would be really hard to translate. With Machado, you read it and you think this would be easy. And then when you read it twice, you think this is impossible because he's, he's constructed something so subtle that and that nonetheless is the engine of, of what he's what he's describing to you.
1: Harvard professor and historian Sidney Chaloubi also has a special relationship to this text. He, along with pretty much every Brazilian student, read Machado's work in school. It was a strange, bold novel, a visionary work that broke new stylistic ground.
0: I grew up in Rio, and Machado de Assis is the most prominent Brazilian writer of all times. He decided to experiment radically with the possibilities of the novel at the same time that he was in many ways mocking the previous models uh, with which he was in dialogue romanticism and realism, sometimes I think he's our Shakespeare in many ways, <laughs> right? He's our classic. He's our uncontroversial classic.
1: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, I sat down with Flora Thompson DeVoe and Sidney Chaloubi. We discuss Joaquin Maria Machado de Assis's The Posthumous Memoirs of Bras Cubas.
2: He's such a major figure that you have a whole generation of authors in the early 20th century who are writing against him or writing, you know, trying to, he, he becomes, he becomes this enemy figure because he's, you know, he's the founding president of the Brazilian Academy of Letters. So pretend you're, you're a Brazilian person in 18. 18- Eighty, You picked up your issue of Revista Brasileira, which is the the publication in which it was serialized, and you see the posthumous memoirs of Bras Cubas. And you know, or you probably know, that Bras Cubas was the governor of the captaincy of São Vicente in the 16th century. And then you start reading and you realize that that isn't this guy.
1: Machado's Posthumous Memoirs is a novel, but there was a real person named Bras Cubas. He was a Portuguese nobleman and explorer in the 16th century who founded the village of Santos in what is today Sao Paulo. But oddly, this story has nothing to do with him. Machado just decided to use the name Brás Cubas for his main character and narrator.
2: They're not posthumous memoirs in the sense that, you know, it's Brás Cubas who died in the 16th century. No, it's it's this guy, you know, from from Rio who is dead and is writing somehow to amuse himself from beyond the grave.
1: The character of Bras Cubas is born into the elite upper class in Brazil. He doesn't have a career and is basically just independently wealthy. Let's talk about Machado's life. How did he become the kind of person who writes this daring book?
2: So Joaquim Maria Machado de Assis is um, born in Rio in 1839. And... Um, he is the mixed race grandson of, of former slaves on his father's side. Um, his mother was a, an immigrant, uh, a white immigrant from the Azores. Um, and if Brazil had a working class at that point, then you would call his family working class. It's it's very hard. You know, you don't have a functional working class because it's you know Brazil is still very much a, a slave holding society. And just but. Uh, A poor family um, dependent on a wealthier family in in the port zone of Rio.
1: Machado attended public school until he was 10 years old. At this time, his mother died and Machado and his father moved to a new town and his father remarried.
2: There's this whole mythology about how on earth he came to write this brilliantly sophisticated Portuguese. How on earth he acquired this vast mental library. But that's all they are
1: myths, and theories. It's really a mystery how he came to possess such a genius for writing. But we do know how his career began.
2: He gets a job as a topographer's apprentice uh, as as a teen, and he just manages to insert himself into this world of, of literary production in, in 19th century Rio. Uh, and he sort of m- moves his way up. He becomes a, uh, one of his first jobs actually was as a theater censor, uh, because we're in, we're in Imperial Brazil. Um, And then he became a
0: critic and a columnist.
1: Machado eventually gets a job at a local newspaper.
0: He was employed in a daily paper called Diário do Rio de Janeiro. It's a very staunchly liberal paper, uh, uh, which criticized um, the concentration of power in the hands of the emperor. Brazil was a monarchy at the time.
1: The newspaper Machado worked for focused on social change and was openly critical of the Brazilian government.
0: He struggled for the expansion of citizenship rights and had other types of critiques to the political status quo. And he worked on, uh, he worked in, on this until um, the late 1860s. At
1: this point, Machado took a job that he would hold for many years.
2: For most of his life, the way that he made a living, um, and this even in you know at the height of his fame, he was a civil servant at the Ministry of Agriculture. So this very typical 19th century thing of, you know, you make your living through this, you know, pen pushing, and uh, then you're also an extremely active member of this literary society. Although he
1: had a day job, Machado still managed to make a name for himself in the literary world.
0: He was so successful that he was actually the founder and first one of the founders and first president of, Brazil, of the Brazilian Academy of Letters. And so, you know, this is a man who was the, the grandson of, of enslaved people, right? Growing up in relative poverty, and and he, he became the most important writer. I mean, arguably, he's the most important Brazilian writer of all times.
1: Machado wrote the posthumous memoirs of Bras Cubas in 1879, right in the middle of his literary career. Could you provide listeners a plot summary?
2: He opens with a bit of a prologue, sort of not really explaining, but at least situating us. Um, And he explains that he died both in spite of and because of his brilliant invention, the Brás Cubas Plaster, which is this anti-melancholy drug that we never get any details on, but we're led to believe would have been Revolutionary, had he not come down with a cold and died as he was working on it. One of the chapters that really tends to bowl people over and really was the, the point at which, you know, I was just absolutely blown away by the novel when I was reading it is the chapter about his delirium, where we get sort of the last you know, sparks of his dying brain taking him on this tremendous journey back to the origin of time and facing down with nature. And it's just like, that. when I talk about Machado cutting loose, that is, you know, the, but as Cuba's riding through the ages on the back of a talking hippopotamus, that's that happens in the first seven chapters. And then he yanks us back into his comfortable childhood and lets us see how this, you know, little feckless boy king is raised, uh, you know, pampered. He's growing up along with this colony that becomes an empire without really having matured as he, you know, a teenager falls in love with this, this Spanish prostitute and then gets separated from her and packed off to college in Portugal, where he doesn't really learn anything either. In Brazil at the time, going to college was
1: a huge privilege. It was typically something only the elite class would do. Someone of Bras's background.
2: So he comes back, um, you know, not not having learned much of anything. And uh, first, that the plan for him is that he's going to uh, become a uh, a politician and marry well. And he manages to do neither of those, but then uh, gets into the an an extramarital affair with the woman that he was supposed to marry, and then becomes very briefly. A, uh, um, a politician before getting himself kicked out of Congress out over a misunderstanding about a speech about reducing the size of of soldiers' uh, caps. There's this great word, uh, I couldn't find a way to translate, which is basharel And it literally just means someone with a college degree. And that is as if it were their profession. And this is this relic of, you know, you didn't expect these young men to do anything you're they're expected to go to queen but i come back with a law degree and then that's like they've ticked the box they don't need to do anything else so he is he is the consummate bacharel in that he you know he, he he ends his days um you know ignominiously taken in by a crazy philosopher and then we we wind up the book um you know with with this invention that that never comes to be and which uh he assures us would have brought him fame and glory had he not been struck by a draft and and tragically perished
1: what What is the context in which this is written?
2: We have two time frames we have you know, Machado's life, which is, you know, from 1839 to the point at which he starts to write uh, The Posthumous Memoirs of Braz Cubas, which is 1879. It's first published in 1880, comes out as a book in 1881. And then we have Brás Cubas's life. So Brás Cubas is two generations older. He's born in 1805, and he dies in 1869.
1: Machado places the fictional Brás Cubas in an earlier era so that he can draw parallels to certain events in Brazilian history. Brás Cubas himself doesn't do much in his life, but he became a vessel for Machado to address social issues.
2: He's born at the at the turn of the nineteenth uh, century, uh, just a couple of years before the Portuguese court is forced to flee Lisbon because of Napoleon's uh, invasion.
1: When Napoleon invaded Portugal, the Portuguese king fled to Brazil,
2: and then you have this strange, unique situation of one of the you know, great uh, Western European empires shifting its base to a colony so uh during braz's uh childhood you have the court establishing itself in rio and transforming rio entirely there are all sorts of uh peculiar consequences of of the portuguese empire's center of gravity shifting to brazil and one of them is the fact that when brazil becomes independent unlike all the rest of latin america um, there is not a war of independence and then a Republic. There are some scuffles, conflicts, and then Brazil becomes an empire, an empire under the son of the, the, the king, the, the Portuguese king.
1: When Napoleon's reign ended, the king returned to Portugal and left his son, Pedro I, to govern Brazil. But Pedro wasn't interested in governing the way his father had he declared independence from portugal and established the brazilian empire on september 7th 1822.
2: so there's this sort of bloodless peaceful transition among elites um and you know this this historical anomaly anomaly of a latin american empire which i think most americans will will not uh be aware of so braz's but life uh takes place during the during the empire and As Machado is writing uh, Memories Posthumas Bras Cubas, we are entering into the last decade of that imperial monarchy. So Brazil becomes a republic in 1890. And so that, you know, that is operating at the level of of the throne. But all, uh, you know, all of these struggles and all of these dynamics are permeated by the question of slavery.
1: The slave trade had been a huge part of Brazil's economy since the early 1500s. Enslaved Africans were brought across the Atlantic Ocean to work in Brazil's sugar, diamond, gold, and later coffee industries. Brazil was the last country in the West to abolish slavery. This had a big impact on Machado.
0: I, I think the the experience of seeing that institution um, in crisis and all the violence associated with it, I think and being himself a person of African descent with, you know, uh, his father actually being the son of people who had lived in slavery, um, made him very acutely aware of how absurd exercising this type of domination over other people, uh, how could that ever exist? And, and made him reflect upon um, the justification or domination of other peoples in general, right? This is because I think this is a repeated message. Lots of details, if you think of them, they somehow seem to have an anchor in this general insight about about humanity and about societies.
1: There were many attempts to abolish slavery in Brazil throughout the 19th century. The Aberdeen Act of 1845 authorized the British Navy to intercept any Brazilian or Portuguese slave-bound ship. Things finally began to change in Brazil in the 1870s when the Rio Branco Law was passed. This stated that any child born to enslaved parents would be free. Machado himself played a key role in enforcing this law.
0: A very important aspect of his biography is that in the 1870s, He is working in the Ministry of Agriculture and he becomes chair of a department within the ministry that was in charge of overseeing the application of the slave emancipation law of 1871. So he worked for several years trying to um, make sure that the dispositions of the law that um, recognized several rights to enslaved people and several avenues to freedom that they started to to have after the law of 1871. So Machado's job was to make sure that the dispositions of the law would be respected by slaveholders, that they would not find ways around the law to keep people under slavery. That that should be um, considered free or freed.
1: But despite his efforts, not all slaveholders obeyed this law. Machado commented on this by paralleling it in his novel with an affair that Bras Kubas is having with a married woman in the story. It's a very open secret in their social circle. It's technically not allowed, but everyone turns a blind eye. This was a metaphor for slavery. There were laws against trafficking people and keeping children as slaves, but many people in power ignored them. But it wasn't just about slavery. Bras Kubas was a member of the elite who was relatively unaware of most of the politics and social issues of the time.
2: This is the brilliant thing about having a member of a clueless member of the elite as as your as your narrator. Um, you know, all of these things come up, but as isn't really paying attention to them. You know, he's sort of half paying attention to them. They're sort of they're 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 in the water.
1: Machado was trying to reflect the issues of the Brazilian elite to his readership, which was the Brazilian elite.
2: The first uh, modern census done in Brazil was done in 1872 and came out in 1876. And this is sort of a blow to Machado's and other contemporary writers' hopes of creating uh, a literature, a national literature for Brazil because the census shows that of, you know, I've, I've forgotten the, the figure of the total population, but only 14% of the population was literate. Um, so you have these aspirations of writing these great novels that will synthesize the national spirit and show Brazil to Brazilians. And then you realize that you're really, you know, it's, it's almost worse than, you know, just talking to a a very small group of people. You're talking to a very small group of people and they're all, you know, they're all Bras Cubases, you know, the, the people who could write and read, you know, with, with, uh, with very few exceptions, you know, Machado being one, these are the ruling class. So what what do you do? You you slip into their skin and then you, you hold uh, them up to themselves.
1: Machado used Brás Cubás as a caricature of the elite ruling class in Brazil at the time. Brás was born into this class and acted in a way that was supposed to show the ruling class what they were actually like. But as clever as this idea was, it didn't quite land. When this novel was first published, many of Machado's critiques on society
2: went unnoticed and the book was largely misunderstood. You know, people didn't really understand what he was up to. You know, the, the extent to which this critique is pervasive and yet subtle made people only sort of see that he was doing formal experimentation and they thought that that was peculiar. But it wasn't understood as sort of a searing critique of the society until much, much later.
1: Machado's critiques may have gone over the heads of his audience at the time because Bras Cubas was such a familiar character to them, not a caricature in the way Machado had intended.
2: We may enjoy the experience of, of him guiding us sort of wildly through, through the novel, but he's able to do that because he's this, you know, horrible little boy king. And that's, you know, these are the people who are, who are running Brazil. And that is just, that takes a very, very long time to, to sink in for people. Um, and and sort of the 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 tragedy of of Machado, you know, making a mark or failing to make a mark is that he is absorbed. He is he is able to circulate and be absorbed so much later that you know the, the subtlety of those critiques. Once you're distancing yourself from the from the historical and, and social context, it's much harder to pick up on what he's doing.
1: Even Thompson DeVoe didn't quite understand the specific context at first.
2: One of the things while I was translating that I hadn't realized and which I only came to understand as I was doing the footnotes is the amount of money that he just has at his sticky little fingertips. So there's there's an episode early on where he falls in love with a Spanish prostitute and you know, just Runs through all the jewelry stores in in Rio trying to, to trying to keep her appeased, and the amount of money you know that it's a large amount of money that he spends on her because his father is not pleased. But when I did the calculations, uh, to try to to bring it up to current dollars, I thought that can't possibly rewrite. And I got in touch with uh an economic historian who works with nineteenth century Brazil, and you know. He basically confirmed that, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars that this teenager is able to spend on his Spanish lady friend. And then just there are these things that, you know, once you're able to understand the scale of this comedy, then you can understand the scale of the tragedy. Just being a member of this upper crust, he just wields this tremendous, you know, obscene power. What are some of your favorite moments? I really I have sort of two categories of favorite moments. And um, the the first category that my favorite moments from the first times I read it, where I just thought this was one of the funniest books that I had ever read. And um, I was I was really taken aback by its modernity in the sense of just being. Uh, constantly shattering the fourth wall you know there's a there's a chapter where he'll use a metaphor and then the next chapter is entitled to a critic and he says i know you're going to take issue with that metaphor and let me just tell you you know i did i said it deliberately god i have to explain everything so it's just like as as a freshman in college you know starting to 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 venture into literary criticism that was that was a welcome you know poke in the eye um just the the sheer craziness the the deranged beauty of the delirium and uh that and and these moments of self-awareness in the book plus the 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 moments of of experimentation there there are a couple chapters that are all punctuation and, you know, just the the point at which what one other thing that we did in, in this edition was preserve the layout of of the editions that were published while Mashada was alive. And, you know, when you think that he started out as a typographer's apprentice, uh, you know, that it's and this is this is a book that reflects on itself as a book. It's very um you know, it, it functions at that level. So there there are lots of you know, you turn the page and then the next page is all punctuation. There's this thing since the chapters are so short, lots of the previous editions had just run them all together to to save space. But the the blank page is actually a really important part of of the novel as well. So that that sort of that level of material concern, I just you know I'm I'm really blown away by the sort of the the you know the pauses and the the gasps and the letdowns that he's able to construct just in the way that he arranges the text on the page. So that's one category and then the second category um is the the moments of really well-constructed cruelty. Um these are these are the jokes that um as i'm reading them it's just like it's a they're they're a punch in the stomach and you're like god, I can't believe he said that. You know, like you 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 find yourself questioning how you could ever have felt s- some sort of sympathy for this guy. Uh, you can only really understand the depths of his cruelty when you understand his p- his place in society and the way he's being so tremendously callous with the lives of, of of others around him. So I actually I went through a phase of you know first thinking this is the most hilarious book I've ever read, and then as I learned more about this whole context of of slavery and imperial Brazil and this tremendously unequal society, I started thinking this is one of the cruelest books that I ever read, and I felt you know sort of dumb for having been able to laugh at so much of it because you know that's like Machado is you know putting up this song and dance and you know when you just twitch back the curtain you see that this is actually a tragedy and so there's this moment of of almost guilt and then you see that you know this is a deliberately constructed comedy but it's 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 this comedy that that is rooted very much in pain so that that's sort of where I've come to as a resting point, where where the, the places that I keep coming back to in the book are places where the punchline almost makes you want to cry, because it's just, you know, <laughs> it's funny because it's tragic.
1: So let's let's now move to It's Afterlives, uh, the, the posthumous <laughs> reception of posthumous memoirs. Um, so I guess it'd be helpful for you to take us through, and you've alluded to it before a little bit, but this text's influence on Brazilian culture and life.
2: Within Brazil, it's sort of the novel, uh, you know, it has this pioneering aspect of the novel that showed what Brazilian novels could do. And once you've had your dead narrator riding a hippopotamus toward the 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 source of of all time in Chapter 7, that's just like, that has this tremendously fertile effect and so there's there's the narrative impact and then there's the sort of the social impact of what machado did in um you know be, being this this very prominent author and being the founding president of you know the the Brazilian the Brazilian Academy of Letters is really his his baby and sort of fostering this space for the professionalization of literature you know i think there there have been very few times in in brazilian history or in history in general when authors have been able to live from their craft but at least this is a step towards towards that sort of uh, formal recognition, institu- institutionalization of of Brazilian letters, and that really in a nation that had not had that much literary production. So it's it's astounding that you know this is you know it's not one of the first Brazilian novels by any means, but it is um, you know it it has it's 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 almost a foundational novel um and machado has never gone away machado has never not been canonical he's everywhere um and and this this notion of the of the sardonic narrator i mean i've the i've seen people link it to the ways in which voiceover is used in in brazilian tv i mean it's just it's something that gets baked into the dna of cultural production
1: not many brazilian texts get translated for american readers in fact, not many translated texts in general make it into the hands of American readers at all. Only 3% of published works in the U.S. are translations.
2: He was translated into only a, a few languages during his lifetime. He died in 1908. Uh, and his first novel to be published in English, which was which was this one, uh, The Pashimus Momores of Kubus, it was published as Epitaph of a Small Winner, uh, was in 1952. So... You know from from eighteen eighty to nineteen fifty two you're obviously going to to lose a lot of the impact. and then he arrives in English literature as this peculiar uh, anachronism where in reading it, you can um, you can certainly appreciate the humor, the delicacy, the sort of deranged aspects of it, but you won't understand necessarily, Why this is so much more than a, you know, Tristram Shandy in the tropics, unless you have this this historical context.
1: The most popular Latin American authors that the U.S. reads are Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Jorge Borges. When Machado's work made it to the U.S. in the 1950s, readers were given an entirely new view of Latin American literature and culture. And slowly but surely, Machado kept gaining admirers.
2: With every generation, so to speak, of translations, Machado gains a little great, a little you know, a few more people in the fan club, and it's an illustrious fan club. You know, he there's uh, Susan Sontag, and uh, you know Salman Rushdie, and Allen Ginsberg, and you know, it's just you know, it's 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 a who's who. Woody Allen, um, now Dave Eggers, um, and and in terms of in terms of how it's received. You know, for a novel written in 1880, maybe it had to arrive in the United States again after we had absorbed this sort of sardonic, very meta literature of a whole generation, you know, of the likes of Dave, Eggwer- Dave Eggers, uh, David Foster Wallace, you know, getting used to um, people really playing with text and even with, you know, formatting and things like that to be able to feel at home with a Latin American piece of work that is doing exactly the same thing, but, you know, a full century earlier. With the posthumous
1: memoirs of Bras Cubas, Machado de Assis found a way to depict society and government from a different angle and reveal truths often overlooked by those in power. This indirect style has been adopted by many authors and artists over the years as a more effective method for critiquing the way we live and function as a society.
2: We have all these... Uh, debates and all these anxieties about, you know, what art is relevant and urgent in in these times of of such great evil. And Brascubes is is a strange, you know, example of of what you can do. You know, when you know you're talking about a mixed race man in a society where slavery is legal, writing to the slave owners. It's this very clever and unexpected way of, of, of posing a social critique within something that is, is nonetheless the, the finest, you know, literature that, that you could want. Writ
1: Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Do. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pecci. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.